also testing my, since I last used my phone, my older eyes a little bit. So uh, we'll see how this goes. All right. Well, you may remember last weekend, John 14, we left off in the midst of the disciples hearing for G- from Jesus, really the last extended time before his uh, death. So after three years of being physically present with them, engaging in ministry together, Jesus was nearing his departure, and he knew it. And they probably had some indication. He had a lot to share in that last evening together. The foundation of it being, I think, what we focused on last week, which is that the way forward, the way to remain in relationship with Jesus, the way to remain in trust in Jesus is just that. Not to simplify it too much, but it's a lifetime of trust. This relationship that Jesus came to bring his disciples and to bring to us is not just a prayer that we pray or a walk down an aisle in a church. It is a daily decision that we will trust, that we will walk with Jesus. I'm going to begin this uh, morning in verse 6, which is a portion of what we read last week, and read through verse 14 for our text. Hear these words from John 4. Jesus said to him, Thomas, who had asked the question, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known him. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, to Philip, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. There's almost a kind of a, a who's on first thought that comes to my mind with these. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. I am in the Father. The Father is in me. If you don't believe in me, well, believe in the works of the Father has sent me to do. You remember that old skit? Who's on first? What's on second? So on and so forth. I was in, in my work there with Traveler's Insurance. I'm familiarizing myself with claims that have been, in some instances, existent for a number of years, but I've never seen before. And so part of that process is to read through the file and figure out who's who. This last week, I ran into one that happened in Olathe, where I finally 
had to just sit down with a piece of paper and literally write out who was who and who was in whose car so I could figure out who I needed to pay. Huh? Kind of that same idea. I remember in Greek, in seminary, we had uh, uh, the task of, of uh, translating a section of John. I don't think it was John 14. I don't really remember what it was. My Greek, it's a miracle. I passed Greek class, to be honest with you. That's why it's so, it's so rare for me to refer to the original language. Because I, well, shoot, we have it in English. So let's just use, let's just use that, right? For sim- simple people like, like me. If, 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 you, if you have the word right, huh? Uh, for instance, what's one up there a lot? Father, uh, believe is up there a couple of times. If you have those words right, you're going to do okay in translating. They use them enough, though, that if you have them wrong, it's not going to go well with the, with the translation. There's a lot of repetition in this passage, and it's tough. It can be tough to, to kind of make your way through it and not get lost in the in the repetition of of what it is that Jesus is trying to say. I think Thomas' interjection of the question (laughs) was was an effort to to try to slow Jesus down a little bit. We talked last week about maybe, maybe this is similar to dropping a kid off at college. And Jesus is just giving all of this information. And Thomas and Philip are, hey, slow down. Let me, let me take this in. Philip asks that Jesus show them the Father. And with patient directness, Jesus responds with a question of his own directed to Philip. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? There's a sense, and I don't want to read too much in it. Shoot, I can't read the Greek, so I don't want to read tone of voice too much into it, but I'll take a stab. There's a sense of disappointment in Jesus' words, aren't there? Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? Hmm. The disciples often got Jesus' meaning wrong. Almost 2,000 years later, (laughs) I, maybe we, if I feel extra bold, are probably in good company some some days. Mm. Jesus question about whether he was whether he remained unknown by these remaining 11 in the room should catch our attention this morning I think. This passage begs the question about what it truly means to know and as a result to follow Jesus. As Jesus went over the most important information in these last hours that were quickly becoming just minutes that he had with his disciples, there's this highlight about knowing and becoming like Jesus in this passage. In the biblical text, to know someone is about a shared intimacy, a closeness, a bond. It's about blending our being with theirs. I fear many times that I, maybe we, fall short. Jesus told us clearly, love your enemies. 
He told us to treat our neighbor in the same way we would want to be treated. He said to welcome the stranger. He said that if someone hits us on one side of the cheek, turn to them the other. If you had known me, you would have known my father also, he said to Philip. If we offer a true assessment of ourselves, as well-intentioned as we may be, and though there are times that we nail it, there are also times when we just get it wrong. I don't want to be too quick to let us let me wiggle off the hook, but I, I, I do think that there's, there is a reality that if those who live side by side with Jesus could ask follow-up questions, as it were, to all that they saw and even have casual table talk about the events of the day, if, if, if these 11, and clearly the 12th, didn't get it, if they didn't get it, should we expect ourselves to get it? For me, there, there is hope. There is hope in the broader context of this conversation that, that Jesus hasn't just thrown this teaching out and, and said, you know, do with it what you will. You're on your own. Good luck. Jesus started this whole conversation with a promise that he's going to prepare a place for us. Which means we're in. Huh? Which means that if the place is being prepared for us, that our, our destination is certain. Second, he doesn't, he doesn't turn on those who haven't gotten it. He attempts it again with his discussion with with Philip and Thomas and the other disciples that remain in the room and reminds them, you have seen me and what I do. You have seen the Father. Remember what you have seen. Remember what you have experienced to this point. And if you do what I did, you will be as close to the Father as I am. And then he gives them a promise there in that last bullet point. If you need help, ask. Now, now, this, this promise that we concluded our passage with, this, you know, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. This is not Jesus' uh, replication of Aladdin's genie, where you rub the lamp and you get three wishes, and whatever you say, if you say, in Jesus' name, I hope there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven Lamborghinis when we walk outside. Huh? I could wish it. I, yeah, you're welcome. I doubt it's going to be there. Because the caveat of the whole thing is for the glory of God. Remember, remember what that word meant to Jesus? That did not mean elevation as some sort of you know, political clout or, or, or influence of society. The glory of God for Jesus was death. Those who are qualified to pronounce such things tell us that on average, a person requires 17 repetitions to master something. 
So that means, because it's an average, that some could get a concept. Think of, well, at our house, we have a kindergartner. And they're just beginning to delve into, you know, kind of basic arithmetic. That means that in her class of 25 kids or so, that a few of them, after two or three times of hearing one plus one equals two, they'll get it. Now, if, if she's got my genetics as opposed to her mother's, she'll be, she'll, 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 she'll be the one that skews the average a little higher. Huh? If average is 17, that means some take 34 or 35 times. It's not only true of basic math, though. It's true of discipleship, too. We can and probably should take comfort in the dimness of the disciples and the ways in which Jesus didn't give up on them and doesn't give up on us either. We need to be reminded of Jesus' command to love our enemies, to welcome the stranger, to live out those teachings and the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount and uh, John in the final discourse and, 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 and the various lessons taught throughout Jesus' ministry about elevating those who are often overlooked. To welcome our neighbor, even those who look, think, live, vote differently than we do. There's an old story about a pastor who got up to give his first sermon to his new church. Everyone was very pleased by the ability of the pastor to take scripture and apply it to their life, and to keep uh, you know, the, the sermon uh, flowing and, and, and relatively interesting. And uh, they went up, many of them, afterwards to the committee who had called the pastor and congratulated them on the fine work they did in finding this pastor who would uh, be such a good fit for their church. And the next Sunday, the crowd gathered and they were excited to hear him again. Well, what, what's next? He proceeded to preach the exact same sermon again. It was good, again, well-crafted, articulate, and moving, but the congregation was a little confused and perplexed. We just heard this. Maybe they thought, maybe they thought in his homiletics or, or teaching uh, or preaching course in seminary, that he somehow missed the, the, the class session where the professor said that you actually should preach a different sermon every Sunday. The next Sunday, they gathered a bit more cautiously, kind of dreading what may happen. Sure enough, same sermon, third Sunday in a row. The committee chairman was summoned to get to the bottom of it. He met with the new pastor for lunch and asked, were you not taught to preach a different sermon every Sunday? Did, did, you grew up in church. Did the preacher preach the same sermon every, every Sunday? And his answer was, well, this was a bold move for a three-weekend pastor. Say to the committee chairman, well, when I get any indication that someone is acting on it, I will change the subject. <laughs> I want to clarify this sermon this morning is probably more to me than you. 
It's at least to us. Mm. This knowing and living like Jesus is something every generation of disciples has struggled with. We're no different. So we recommit ourselves this week, this day, to living like the one who gave his life for us. Amen. As we prepare our hearts for communion, we're going to stand and sing together two verses of the great hymn, My Savior's Love. If you're able to stand, I'd invite you to...